Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 11, 1 through chapter 12, 26. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the presence of the providence province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephathiah, son of Mahala, of the sons of Perez, and Masadah, the son of Barush, son of Kolhoza, son of Hezeah, son of Hadeah, son of Joyarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. All of the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Selu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joad, son of Padiah, son of Kaliah, son of Maelsiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jesheah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hesenua, was second over the city. Of the priests, Judea, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Hadeah, the son of Jeroam, son of Pelach, son of Amzai, son of Zechariah, son of Pasher, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amashiah, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshalimoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. And their, their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolam. And of the Levites, Shemiah, the son of Hasab, son of Azarek, son of Ashiabiah, son of Bunat, and Shabbatiah, and Josabad, of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Madaniah, the son of Micaiah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks, and Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abda, 
the son of Shemua, son of Gali, son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Achab, Talman, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, every one in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Ophel and Ziah and Gishpah were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mathaniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshazabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all manners, matters concerning the people. And as, of, and as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kera, Ith, Arba, and its villages, and in Dibon, and its villages, and Jechazebel, and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Moladah, and in Beth Pelai, in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba, and its villages, in Ziklag, in Mechanoah, and its villages, in Enraman, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoth, Adalam, and their villages, Lashish, and its fields, and Akaziah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinmon. The people of Benjamin also lived in Geba onward, at Michmash, Asia, Bethel, and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazar, Ramah, Gidim, Hadid, Jezobam, Nebaloth, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen, and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Hattush, Shekaniah, Reham, Merimoth, Idu, Genethi, Abijah, Majamin, Maadiah, Bilgog, Shemiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Halu, Amak, Hilkiah, Jedidiah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Bainu, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mathaniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Unai and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joiada, Joiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadu. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses of Sariah, Mariah of Jeremiah, Hananiah of Ezra, Meshulam of Amariah, Jehoanan 
of Malachi, Jonathan of Jebaniah, Joseph of Herarium, Adna of Marioth, Helkai of Idu, Zechariah of Jenathan, Meshulam of Abijah, Zachri of Minamon of Moadai, Piltai of Biljah, Samu of Shemaiah, Jenathan of jo Joyrib, Math Madani of Jeediah, Uzai of Salai, Kali of Amach, Eber of Hilkiah, Hashabiah of Jediah, Nathaniel. In the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mathaniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Achab were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. This is the word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, uh, we have been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah throughout the course of what well, we started back last year. Um, we preached through Ezra. Um, which those two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, really originally were one book together and they, they split up the scrolls to separate, but it's really one story that's being told between these two books of the Bible. We started in Ezra and we talked about what was going on um, there. The city was in ruins after, city of Jerusalem was in ruins after the people had rebelled against God. He rose up a foreign army um, to discipline his people for the rebellion. He, they take them off into exile and for 70 years they were in a, a pagan society in, in Babylon behind enemy lines. And after that 70 years or so had elapsed, God rose, raised up men, mighty men, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the ruins of the city of God. And we see through the story of Ezra <clears throat> that there was a little bit of success and then they sort of tapered off. And then Nehemiah comes up and Nehemiah hears that the project of rebuilding the ruins has not moved forward with the, the intensity that many had hoped it would. He hears of the, the city um, being still, the city walls in ruins. People are there and around the city. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt, but the city itself is kind of in a sorry state. He hears word of this, and he says, we'll come back. I'm going to come back, and we're going to rebuild. We're going to rebuild the city walls and rebuild the city. And so this whole story of, of Nehemiah, of Ezra and Nehemiah, has been about rebuilding the ruins, restoring what's been broken. Now, if Nehemiah has done anything for us, I mean, it's done a lot, I think. Uh, it's done a lot for me. Um, but spending time in Nehemiah has done anything for us. One of the things that it has done, as we saw demonstrated this morning, is that it has upped the reading game of our scripture readers, all right? We had average scripture readers. Now we have elite scripture readers because they have been put through the ringer. 
And it's interesting here because if you've been with us, you know this is not the first time that we've come in, into contact with a massive list of names. In fact, this is the third time in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra has his own set of names that he brings out over and over. But this is the third time in the book of Nehemiah where we see an extensive list of names. And I used to tell guys, I do this thing once a month with guys that are wanting to grow as preachers or learn what it's like to preach. I tell them, you know, um, one of the first sermons that I ever preached was a genealogy, which I thought was a, a dirty trick, right? A fresh preacher, I'm gonna hand you off this passage. Like, what exactly do you do with that? And I, I didn't realize it, but I think last year I did one of the same things um, to another relatively new preacher. But, but I told these guys, when this happens, like I've come to the point now where I kind of get excited when I see a list of names because I got a couple sermons. I know kind of what to do with it. I got two or three sermons or general structure of sermons that you know, lock and load, ready to go. But what happens when this is the fifth time that you've come in contact with a long list? I'm running out of content here, okay? I don't know what to do with this anymore. But actually, if we do keep a narrow perspective on, on these, these verses that were read today, um, it's really, you're scratching your head, what's he gonna do with it? It's kind of like a, it's like a circus act almost. Like, what's he gonna do with it? What's he gonna do now? Um, but what I want to do is help us sort of zoom out here to see this moment, this, this list of names in context of what's been going on in the city. And actually, what I want to show you is that this is sort of a, a climax uh, of the whole story. Like things have been building and progressing as the city walls go up and people start building homes and start migrating back and they get all this stuff going on. We saw in chapters eight and nine and 10, there's this real culture formation thing going on as the people recover covenant to God, that this is how we're going to live in light of your mercy. So there's just all kinds of things going on. And now we come to the time where it's time to fill the city. It's time to put people in the city. And so after Nehemiah bats down all of the opposition to rebuilding the walls, they finish it. And in verse uh, chapter seven, verse four, Nehemiah says, the city is wide, but the city is empty. Big city, walls are up, but nobody's home. So we have people, the Israelites, who are living around the city in villages and rural areas. They're living around the city. Um, and we bring ourselves to the question, what good is this city that they just rebuilt if nobody lives there? Well, what's the point of all this effort of rebuilding these walls and creating this vision of infrastructure and the stuff that's going on? At the what's the point of all that if nobody's there to participate? And if nothing happens, what, what's going to happen is Jerusalem, again, becomes a ghost town. Now, one of the things that we see right off the bat in our passage, verse uh, 1 and, and 2, is that Jerusalem isn't like any other city. Jerusalem is a city of its own league. It is a special city. It's a sacred city. It's called the city of God or the city of David. It's a holy city a city that's set apart from every other city on the face of the earth. Now, why is that? It's because God himself dwelt there among his people. As the temple had been constructed and in, in the center of the temple, the holy of holies, God's presence dwelt there among his people and God's holy presence made that space a holy space and a holy city. It set it apart. And one of the ways that they observed God's presence there among them 
was the way that, that all of life sort of revolved around the temple. It was the epicenter of the city, right? If you were to extract the temple from the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem would lose its corporate identity. It would lose its city identity because the temple and all of the ritual and celebration and Sabbath festival type things were integral to the city culture. And as we see the glory of God dwelling among his people, we see the people of God responding to the glory of God, right? Celebrations, festivals, all this stuff. There's something appealing about that. People would be drawn to the city of Jerusalem because there was something special going on there. The glory of God was being demonstrated through worship, and people living a fully devoted life to God. Now, in order to restore the former glory of Jerusalem, because they had lost all that, right? That, when, when the city was destroyed, they lost that buzz, that appeal. In fact, as, as we saw at the beginning of Nehemiah, people would look at the city and, and scoff at it because it was so embarrassing. So in order to restore the glory of this holy city, in order to renew the city, as we would say, our mission at Sacred City, make disciples, plant churches, renew the city, in order for the Israelites to renew the city of Jerusalem, it must be repopulated. And this is not just bringing warm bodies and putting them in spots and saying, hey, you just hold down the fort here. We're talking about repopulating a city that's alive, that's pulsating with life. And this is a vision that, that as the story progressed, that we see Nehemiah having. See, Nehemiah didn't just come to put up a bunch of stones and stack stones like a Lego project. Like Nehemiah had a vision to rebuild, restore, to renew the city of Jerusalem, that it would obtain its former glory, that it would be like it once was. And as we see Nehemiah's vision and his strategy being played out through this, what happens is that this passage and, and really what's, what's led up to this moment gives us, the church, a blueprint for city renewal, which I find to be pretty helpful if our mission is going to be to renew the city, right? We, we, and, and here's what I realized. We were talking in pre-service prayer. It's easy to think about renewing the city and, and, and view it as this massive project, which it is. It's a big project. Like, we're a little bit crazy to say, hey, we're going to set out and try to renew the city. Um, a little bit crazy. But if we have this massive view and, and there's no real concrete steps of how to move forward, that we'll say we're here to renew the city, but we won't know how to actually do it. And so here we see. Nehemiah giving us a blueprint, showing us what it looks like to get after it and work to renew the city. And so the first thing that Nehemiah does with this vision of renewing the city, hey, let's plop people in the city. And so rather than being a dictator, rather than saying, you, 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 you hop in and you go live in Jerusalem. Now what they do is they cast lots. Um, this is a, 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 an act of chance. And, and the view of casting lots, you can go to Proverbs, speaks of this. It's viewed as the hand of God functioning, doing something where it's not up to the decision of men. So here we have the people of Israel coming, willing to cast lots to see whether or not they're the crew that are going to leave their villages or towns, wherever they've been at in the rural places, to move into the city. 
And what's interesting is that one out of 10 people will be moved back into Jerusalem. And and we're told in verse one and two is that they do so willingly, that there's a willingness to go back and rebuild. Check this out. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, so you got your leaders there. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. There's that holy city. While nine of the 10 remained in other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So here we have people who are willing to go into Jerusalem. You've got the people who are staying back. They're saying, the Lord bless and keep you. You are doing a noble task. And you have this really beautiful moment, a shared vision, a shared vision for the renewal of the city. Now for people to pick up and move like this, to, to leave behind whatever life they established in the region of Judah, it requires two things. Two things to make a move like this. One, it's sacrifice. And two is vision. In order to make a move like this, people, we must realize, are sacrificing in order to do so. They're sacrificing their comfort. They've probably build, uh, built a business in their rural area. Most of them are agrarian, so they're, they're tending to the soil. Um, they've, they've previously settled the land. They've probably set up some kind of dwelling structure to live in. And so here they are. They're sacrificing those things, that life that they've built for them, and moving into the city to start over. I've, I've experienced something similar to this, not, not identical, but similar to this, a couple times, twice in my adult life. In 2011, I had just graduated University of Northern Iowa up in Cedar Falls, um, and I sensed that the Lord was calling me to a new place, right? The Quad Cities. Um, I didn't know anybody. Well, I knew a couple people here, but I, I didn't have a lot of connections. There was no lucrative job awaiting for me. There was, you know, it was just sort of the Lord moving me from a place where I had lots of relationship, lots of church family structure, some sort of vision out of that and to the Quad Cities. And then I felt that again in 2015 when the Lord took me from, and my family, from living on uh, the right side well, I shouldn't say that. Living on, living on the Iowa side of the river and then moving us to Illinois. And I tell people, if it weren't for the Lord, I wouldn't be here, right? Because I'm an Iowa boy through and through. I love my Iowa people. And the Lord moved us here. And in that, there was sacrifice. Both of these moves, both of these transitions in life required sacrifice, leaving behind family. Now I'm further away from my family. Um, I've left behind the friends that I had basically really blossomed with in my faith at college. Even some of the relationships that I had as we were in Davenport at Sacred City Davenport. And then coming here and rebuilding new relationships. There was sacrifice involved there. We moved into a semi-rough neighborhood when we first moved over here. All of this happening, really just revolving around being part of Sacred City Church in Davenport. And that started 11 years ago. And then again, six years ago, when we moved over to uh, Moline to, be, to plant Sacred City Moline. And I know that I'm not the only person that has sacrificed in this journey of planting a church, of building a church. Many in here right now have and are sacrificing to various degrees to be part of something like this. And as I acknowledge sacrifice and your sacrifice, I can't speak for you, I can speak for me. I did it willingly. Sometimes it was reluctant, like really getting across the bridge was a little bit of reluctance, but I did it willingly. 
And you gotta ask, like, like these guys here moving from the outskirts of town into the city center, why? Why would they, why would they move willingly? And I think it's because they caught a vision. They caught a vision of glory. They, they looked at the city of Jerusalem and saw what could be if they were to dwell there and live faithfully. I had that same experience. I, it was the vision of glory that compelled me to make these transitions, to sacrifice, to move to the Quad Cities, then over to Moline. It was a vision of glory asking, what, Lord, can you produce in me? How will the gospel grow me as, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, missional community leader? What is the gospel going to do in me? I saw the future glory as I live in community and on mission. I, I saw a vision of glory for a church that holds fast to the word of God in life and in practice. I saw a vision of glory of a city that undergoes widespread gospel renewal. Just Imagine it, what would it be like if every tongue would profess, every knee would bow to Christ the King? Now in the same way that that vision moved me, it moved the people back into Jerusalem, not just to take up space, not just to exist and carry on business as usual in Jerusalem. They are going back to Jerusalem with purpose. They're going back to renew their city. And if you're going to renew the city, you need people with certain skills and abilities to fill various functions. Because this big vision of renewing the city has to break down into concrete things. What are we going to do? When I wake up tomorrow, what's the work the Lord has for me that will move towards renewal of the city that gives us direction? And what we see in this passage, the rest of this passage, and it's scattered all throughout all of these names, what we see through this rest of the passage is the people and the roles that they play in the work of city renewal. Now, this list is composed of men. And that one of the things this shows us is that the responsibility rests on men. This is a masculine responsibility to lead and to build, to create something that's not yet there for the good of other people. And so we see leading men emerge by name. And these leaders champion the mission, the vision. They say, hey, guys, let us not forget what it is God has called us to do. And part of their task as leaders is to maintain a certain kind of culture. Going back to chapters 8, 9, and 10, where we see this covenant renewal, this idea of God is our God, we are his people. He'll bless us through obedience. Here's what we need to do to obey, right? This revisiting of the covenant, this, this shaping of the culture. And the tasks, or, or I guess the positions, of these leaders, you see things, see the offices of priests, Levites, temple servants, singers, worship leaders. Most of these things, most of these tasks have to do with what's going on inside the temple, right? The worship activity of the people of God. Now, again, this goes back to the reality. The temple is the epicenter of the city. And while the temple is the epicenter, the temple is not the only thing. It is not the entirety of the city of Jerusalem. 
And this is where we see others that emerge, civil servants and magistrates, men who are judging, legislating, and ruling. We see mighty men of valor, gatekeepers, groundskeepers. As you think through the logistics of a developing economy and a developing city, you know that there are tradesmen and craftsmen. Actually, some of them are mentioned. You see construction workers and architects. You see these guys, these roles that have to be played in order to fulfill the calling of rebuilding the ruins. And behind each one of these men, you would probably not be wrong in assuming that all of them are backed by wives. Wives who see the call on on their life. Wives who are supportive of that and wives who carry out their part of mission specifically focused on the homestead. Not that that's the only place where they tend to, but one of the primary places that enables these men to lead not just in the home, but in their community. Both men and women doing essential pieces that are mandatory for city renewal. Now, as you see all these people and all these roles fitting together, one thing becomes very evident is that the shared mission of rebuilding the ruins brings people together in community. While we read through these names, we see this guy, son of, son of, son of, son of, who's named adjacent to this other guy who's son of, son of, son of, son of. God has been and will continue creating for himself a family of families. A people called out, households called out to live as the household of God. Each family, each person member doing what they can do in order to serve the mission, realizing each person has a part to play. There are, there's nobody on the sidelines when it comes to the family of God. Every Christian has a part to play. And sometimes we know what this is with crystal clear, clarity. Sometimes it's hazy. Lord, show me what is it, what is it you're calling me to do? What is it? But through community, through the word, God's people should have have some sort of clarity that when they wake up the next morning, they know my part to play in rebuilding the city looks like this. And as we see this group of people almost like a a well-oiled machine playing their part, the city starts rebuilding. We start to see from the bottom up Right? Things are developing, things are growing socially, physically. You, you get to the realm of civics and, and just religiously, right? Think about covenantally. There's this comprehensive renewal that's going on in the city of Jerusalem and people repopul- are repopulating in order to carry that out. Now, when we look at this, we just to sort of do a survey of the text of what's going on here, what's the point of all these names, those, those are some of the, the things that we see. And, and as we bring these conclusions to the forefront, we realize that there are so many parallels for the church in this passage today. Because like the people of, of Israel, Jesus has given the church a mission. Jesus' mission is to make disciples of all nations. Jesus' mission, he's come announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and its advance throughout the earth. 
What this tells us is that Jesus' vision goes far beyond the vision that the Israelites had just to rebuild one city, right? They were about here, hey, we're here, we're gonna rebuild one city. Jesus' vision is bigger than that. It's not just about one city. It's about all the cities. It's about the entire cosmos being rebuilt. This is one of the things that's proclaimed in the book of Revelation. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. Now, Jesus started the process of making all things new in his his arrival here when when he put on flesh and dwelt among us. He started that work. It launched forward in his his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. But this work is continuing today. As Jesus began the work of redeeming then, the redeeming work carries on through the church today. And so we stand in a spot where the Lord Jesus has called us to renew, to restore, to rebuild. And that, that is all underway. It's taking, it's, 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 um, it's going on right now. But the deal with this is to renew the cosmos takes more than 409 and a bucket of paint, Okay takes more than a really strong cleaning agent. It takes more than, than, than cleaning litter up off the streets and doing good things. It takes more than that. To renew the cosmos takes the blood of the lamb. The whole cosmos covered under the blood of the lamb because through Christ's blood, redemption is made available. Through Christ's blood, renewal takes place. And in order for this vision of glory, of of renewal to take place, sacrifice must occur. And that is what Christ has done. He sacrificed his whole life in order to redeem, to save the cosmos. That's what it takes. It takes massive sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world, to reverse the curse of sin and its effects, to renew, it starts here, to renew our hearts and minds. That's what it takes. And so we see this vision of glory that's in front of us to renew the cosmos, to bring it back, not just to what it once was, but even better to what it, what, what, what it once was. It requires sacrifice. We see a big sacrifice made in the person and work of Jesus But Christians must also realize that Jesus is not the only one who sacrifices for the renewal of the cosmos. Jesus calls his people, Romans 12, he calls us to live our lives as a living sacrifice. To to be people who take what we have and lay it before the Lord and say, use this, God. Here's what I have. Will you use this? To follow Jesus means taking up our cross. Now, in order to do this, we have to realize that we are not working to build our own little kingdoms here. We're not trying to just establish a a world that looks right according to me or or what what suits my preferences. This is a, a wholehearted sacrifice that goes before the Lord and says, I trust you. It's your kingdom. It's your kingdom we want. Now, the way that God brings about this, actually the context that God develops this mission is within Christian community. 
See, the, the only way, the only way to grow as a disciple of Jesus is to live in community and on mission. To be among a people who share the same religious convictions that are increasingly submitting all of life to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People who are existing not just for themselves, but to seek and save the lost just as our Lord has done. And one of the most glorious things of redemption that Jesus does is he develops this kind of community. One of the most glorious acts of Jesus' act of recreation is creating a mission-made community. Men and women linking arms. Churches linking arms with churches to rebuild the ruins through God-given abilities and talents. Now we see this clearly in Ephesians chapter four. Speaks of this, speaks of this at, at length. In verse seven, it says, but grace was given to each one of us. So he's speaking of as members of the body, individual members that comprise the body. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, hear what we see. According to the measure of Christ, God gives gifts to the people that are meant to be used in service to the mission. Now, some of these gifts will be leadership gifts, the evangelists, the prophets, the, the preachers, the teachers, godly and credentialed men who lead and champion the mission, who train other disciples to make disciples. But it's not just those leaders doing the work of the ministry. They raise up leaders. They raise up all people. They equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means all Christians, that all members of the body have a role to play. And it's the leader's job to help deploy them, to show them, to help them to under gain understanding of what that is and deploy them toward the mission. And we see this, again, Romans chapter 12 is another place where this gets brought up. If I can flip to it here. It speaks of this in Romans chapter 12, verse four. For as one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, but individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, in the one who teaches in his teaching, in the one who exhorts in his exhortation, in the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, and there are a whole other slew of other spiritual gifts that are spoken of through the New Testament that the church has at their disposal. These are gifts given that are meant to deploy to, to be deployed in advancement of the kingdom of heaven. Now, th that's where the similarities are between the church and, and uh, the people we see rebuilding Jerusalem. But we need to also realize that, that there are major differences here. And one of the biggest differences in this scenario is that as the people go back 
to rebuild Jerusalem, they're doing so from a relatively blank slate. In fact, you could even argue from chapter 8, 9, and 10, they have a little bit of a head start from developing a culture, like to get the wheels turning, give them some momentum as they hit the ground running. They've got a blank slate to start this whole thing from. But that's not the case for us. Back in 2019, Barna did a a research surveying um, the the United States of America. And our cities ranked number 15 on the list of most post-Christian cities in America. 52% of our population is post-Christian, meaning that, that they do not hold to the Bible they do not have these uh, religious convictions that once were shared as a relatively Christian society, which, which was once a, a shared morality, they, they have moved past that to something else. And so the rebuilding that we're doing is not from a blank slate. There's other things that are work that are actually opposing the work, the rebuilding that God wants this church to do. And in order for us to rebuild the ruins, we're not just coming to a fresh slate of land and building from there. We're going to the ash heap, the rubbles, where destruction has ensued, where there are broken lives and broken hearts, broken ideologies, broken worldviews that only add to the brokenness of the world. And so to rebuild means to transform. It means to to step into the place where things already exist and work for real gospel change. This doesn't happen overnight. This is a a little by little, bit by bit endeavor. Now, one of the temptations here, as we see this calling that God has placed on us to renew our cities, we see the brokenness, we see the hostility or, or the resistance to this kind of a project One of the things that Christians often do is look at the brokenness, point fingers, and complain, well, this is the way it is, and if if they didn't do that, then it wouldn't be so bad for them. We just look at it and complain, and rather than actually doing something productive, rather than picking up the, the trowel and building, we just sort of have this apathetic posture towards the work. But gospel building understanding what God's called us to do to rebuild the ruins means that we don't point fingers. In fact, if we're going to point fingers, the first place we point a finger is to ourselves. Where is my heart in need of reformation? Where are my affections and my loyalties disjointed where they're not totally given to the Lord Jesus Christ? And then you go to your household. Where, where is my household functioning in a way that doesn't honor Christ, right? So rather than pointing the fingers out there, we point the fingers in our chest and say, there's work to do here. There's work to do in my home. There's work to do in this church. And then we work. And then we stick our hands in the dirt and get that grimy stuff under our fingernails, working hard as unto the Lord. And we do so not losing hope, because sometimes it might feel like we're losing ground, but we do so with joy and optimism. Because what the Lord has begun, he will complete. 
And so the idea here is the church, as we enter into the darkness of our city, like uh, this might sound intense, but a God-hating city, a God-rebellious city, we, the church, must be the righteous leaven that leavens the whole lump. So you can work the other way around. One of the, the cautions that Jesus gives that, that the Apostle Paul talks about is be aware of the leaven. Look out for that leaven. You know what leaven? The yeast. You throw yeast into a pile of, of, of uh, flour. And here's my, I'm going to demonstrate the lack of my baking skills here. You throw yeast into a pile of flour and all the ingredients, and what's going to happen is gonna, that little bit of yeast is going to cause the whole thing. It's going to affect the whole climate of that ball of dough. Now, if evil can do that, how much more can righteousness, righteous lives lived in the city for the glory of God? What kind of impact could that have? If Jesus has changed us by his grace, if Jesus has called us into his mission, it's time to be the leaven, the good leaven, the righteous leaven. Our task is to rebuild, to rebuild our city. Like, to, and it's, it's right of Christians. Like, it's right for us to look at our city and lament in the same way that Jesus lamented over Jerusalem in his day to see the brokenness and rebellion. It's right for us to look at that and say, but Jesus wants more for us. Jesus has a, a beautiful vision for this city and we're chasing it down. Now the next question is, how do we go about it? How do we go about rebuilding the city? If this massive project, how do we, how do we go about eating an elephant one bite at a time? One bite at a time. First, based on what we see, the content of this passage, the first focus that we need to have if we're going to rebuild our city is put an emphasis on the worship of God. You see that with the temple, all that temple stuff, all the worship leaders, all the priests, the Levites, the service that's going on around the temple. We need to put an emphasis on the worship of God. That means our Sabbath our Sunday, this is a priority for the people of God to gather, to celebrate God's gift, to renew our covenant, to be reminded of God's grace to us in Christ. If there is no right worship of God, there is no rebuilding of the city. There's no way to shortcut it, guys. Like our city, our, our city government could launch some of the greatest programs that a city in the civil realm has ever seen. Great, phenomenal products, tax dollars well at work, but it will not renew the city the way Jesus wants to do it. It comes about through worship. So there's a priority on the people worshiping together. Then we need to realize that worship doesn't just happen at church or in the temple, worship happens everywhere, especially in the home. Our job as parents is to cultivate a worshiping home, to disciple our kids, to teach them of the mighty works of God, to tell them about what Jesus has done, to train them in righteousness so that they too would love the Lord our God with us. Now, as we do this, 
as we invest in our homes, we build godly homes, God wants to also deploy our children at the right time, at the right time. When our children are formed as disciples and it's ready, they're ready to be shot out. It's got this imagery in the Proverbs like arrows shot. When the time has come to shoot out our children, God plans on using them. So we need to be of the mind that what God wants to do to renew our city is a multi-generational project. Multi-generational project, meaning what you do now by God's grace, will carry a ripple effect down five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten to a thousand generations. This is kind of what we see here, too. Like, son of, 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 right? It's a generational project. They're, they're not doing anything new. They're, they're picking up the torch. They're going about what God has always been about. And as we as parents work in the home to disciple our children, we learn to patiently plod. Patiently. We don't get the say-so on how long this deal takes. Like, our prayers can be, Lord, make it today. That'd be nice. But we don't get to, we don't get to dictate that. It's all in God's timing. So we need to learn to patiently plod, doing the next right thing, learning to be God's faithful people. Now, as we disciple our family and care for their needs, as we realize the assembly of God's people is a central element, we come back to, again, the family of families. Right? Our, our hearts turn towards the covenant family of God, where God is taking families, putting them together, and he's creating pockets in our city that have the scent of the kingdom of heaven. That our missional communities, the way that we love and we serve one another, people step into that and, well, this kind of seems like heaven to me meeting our, our, each other's needs, loving one another, carrying burdens, sharing joys, speaking truth, serving one another, serving together, growing in the gospel together, there's something special going on. If we're going to renew the city, it starts by creating these little pockets of gospel renewal. I'd love to see I'd love to see a missional community in every neighborhood in Moline. Wouldn't that be something? Could you imagine the impact? But as we talk about this community that serves one another, loves one another, we have to realize it's a community that faces both directions. It looks to the inside and it looks to the outside because God is using his people to proclaim the excellencies of Christ so those who hear would be drawn to God. That's what we mean when we talk about living on mission. We're missional. We're evangelists. We're using our resources to bless and to serve others who do not yet know Jesus while proclaiming the good news, the message of the gospel. If we are going to renew the city, if we are going to be a church that impacts the city in a way that, that we have not yet impacted the city, one of the things that we all need to grow in is being heralds of the good news. People who proclaim the lordship, the good news of the lordship of our savior, Jesus Christ. 
who is working now through his people to redeem all things. We cannot renew our city by brute force. This is something that the Lord does, that the Lord brings increase. And so as we give ourselves to evangelism and mission, as we proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done to deal with sin and save the world, we must realize that it's the Holy Spirit who changes. It's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts and minds. It's the Holy Spirit who brings people from darkness to life, from light, from death to life. Our job as we build is to proclaim. And really, as I sum this up here, there are only two choices for the world. There are only two two options available. It's either Christ or chaos. Christ or chaos, those are the only two options on the table. Either people receive the good news of Jesus and they experience the redeeming work that isn't just for individual persons, but for a community, not just for community, but for the cosmos. They experience this renewal. Or if you reject that, if our cities continue to reject Jesus, then all that awaits is brokenness and futility. And so the loving thing for us to do, the most loving thing for us to do as Christians is unabashedly proclaim the good news of Christ. Because by God's grace, there is plentiful redemption. There is enough grace of God to cover our city. And as Christians faithfully work in each area that God has called us to, the kingdom of heaven is advancing. Emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled by the grace of Jesus, we can actually make waves in our city for the kingdom of heaven. Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be something if the Quad Cities just underwent this this wave of revival, right? This wave of reformation, this wave of, of the hearts of men returning to God. We pray that the Lord would do this, that God would save our cities so that the glory of God would cover the Quad Cities as the waters cover the sea. So that Moline would be a sacred city. That the presence of God would be non-ignorable. That the people of God, fully devoted, bought in on the mission. And by the grace of God, glory awaits. A redeemed, a renewed, a beautified city for the good of all people and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness that you have Adequate grace. Every place where sin has corrupted, every place, even even in the deepest, most tucked away, recessed heart, there is a grace that can, can penetrate, a grace that can redeem and restore. And Lord, as we know that you can do this in the hearts and lives of individuals, you can do this church-wide, God, we pray that you would do this in the city. That the vision of a glorious Jerusalem would be transposed to a vision of a glorious Molina, a vision of a glorious Alito, a vision of a glorious Silvis. 
would glory compel us to sacrifice just as the glory of the new heavens and new earth, partakers of glory compelled Jesus to put all of his cards on the table, to lay it all down, that his, his life, everything was sacrificed so that we could have it all. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to honor you. Help us. Would this meal here today be a means of grace so that we could be strengthened and fortified in this work? Lord, would your spirit give us clarity as we go about our day, our lives in the city? Teach us what it is you'd have us to do to work for the renewal of the city. Bless the work of our hands. Strengthen the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands for your glory, for the good of all people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.